0: We worship this morning in the Spirit and through the Son. Amen. Well, nothing motivates more fear and diligence and over-caffeination among college students like final exams. Hey, college students, how many of you all have final exams just around the corner? Okay, a few of you guys. Um, Just a word of advice from someone who used to teach, don't the night before but hey you're all going to wait till the night before and uh, down a few red bulls and a few monsters and and just really test the, the scientific limits of how much caffeine the human body can take in but the entire semester in the final exam is oftentimes on the line You're kind of teetering on the brink between a, maybe a b and a c or between a c and a d or a d and an f or maybe you've already gone over the precipice hopefully that's not the case But grades hang in the balance. Futures teeter on the precipice of success and failure as you come to to final exams. Now, those of you who are not in college, you can remember back to those dark and dreadful days in your past when you experienced such horrible things in high school or maybe college uh, of final exams the dread the fear. Now, I'm one of those weirdos who uh, I liked tests because I liked school. And it was like, yay, I get to take a test and show the teacher how much I know, right? But for most normal people, it's not exactly something you look forward to. A final exam, a good final exam, is typically comprehensive. It'll be like, hey, this is hitting the main learning outcomes of the course. We want to see how well you learned the things you were supposed to learn. It'll cover the entire semester. It will require the student to understand all the salient uh, points of the course. It'll give students the opportunity to demonstrate mastery of the material. And a good teacher, underscore the word good because some teachers are malicious and mean and like to be, you know, what was George Washington's middle name on the test, uh, actually don't know uh, what was Harry S. Truman's middle name, he didn't have one, um, free piece of information, um, a good teacher will prepare his students and he will want them to pass the exam and to do well on that test. When well, we come to Genesis 22, and this is our final, um, our final message in our study on the life of Abraham, sorry Diana, I just remembered to turn on my lapel mic, um, Genesis 22 is like a final exam for Abraham. This is coming sort of the culmination of his his growth in faith, of his journey of faith that began decades before when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. Remember back to Genesis 12, here's Abraham. He's an idolater living in Ur of the Chaldees, modern-day Iraq. God shows up to him and calls him out, not because um, because Abraham was a stand-up guy, not because Abraham was seeking after God, but because God had a purpose, a gracious purpose for Abraham. By God's grace, he responded to that call with faith. As Abraham went along, we could see his growth in faith. He amazingly steps out, leaves Ur, goes to a place that God shows him. He goes out not knowing whither he went, and following God in faith, knowing that God's purposes were good, he comes into the land of promise. Then a famine comes along, and Abraham sort of comes to the first rounds of tests, right? Like three weeks into the semester... And he doesn't do super well on his first test. Off he goes to Egypt rather than consulting God, rather than trusting God. He has this big lie about Sarah being his sister. Almost ends a disaster, but God rescues him from that. Genesis 13, Abraham shows remarkable growth in his faith as he willingly gives up the best of the land to Lot, leaving the decision in God's hands. Really trusts God to do what's best, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. Genesis 14, wow, what a story that is. The armies of, uh, of Ketalaomer sweep into Palestine and take Lot, uh, uh, Abraham's nephew, captive. And Abraham gets a little force, a little strike force of sort of commandos and does this amazing raid and rescues these people all in faith, trusting God to protect him from, from a, a marauding army. Genesis 15, God comes along and promises to Abraham something that's absolutely staggering. Abraham, you're going to have a son. It's not going to be Elimelech, your steward. It's not going to be Lot, your nephew. Your very own son Go out, look at the stars, so shall your seed be. And Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was counted him for righteousness. Now, Abraham had believed in the Lord previously, but his life of faith, God says, by that instrument of faith, I will declare you righteous. Abraham wasn't righteous because of his deeds. Abraham was righteous because God declared him to be righteous through faith. Now, Genesis 16, Abraham has another test, and this one here, he doesn't do super well on either. Sarah comes along and says, Okay, God's promised us a son. It's going to be through you. Hey, here's Hagar, my servant. After all, I, Sarah, can't have kids. So God didn't say that it wouldn't be through Hagar. So this whole scheme, and it's, it's a disaster, right? You get Abraham with Hagar, and then Ishmael is born. And then there's conflict in the home between Hagar and Sarah, and Hagar runs away, and then the angel calls her to come back. And yet in Genesis 17, God comes along and ratifies and confirms this covenant and says, here's going to be this, 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 this sign of the covenant that I'm going to give to you. And the child, by the way, Abraham, is going to be between you and Sarah, even though that is biologically impossible. God, one by one, has taken away every human means of fulfilling his promise, leaving the promise entirely in the hands of God. The only way it's going to happen is through God. Genesis 18, he comes along. He reiterates that. God himself shows up to Abraham's house for dinner and says, Abraham, Sarah, you will have a son. Sarah laughs. Abraham laughs. Everybody's like, that that can't happen. I'm almost 100. Sarah's almost 90. And God says, I'm going to do it. I'm a God. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Genesis 18 and 19, God judges Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's faith grows as he intercedes with God for the city. His intercession resulting in the deliverance and the preservation of his nephew, Lot. Come along to Genesis 20 and another test Abraham doesn't do super well on. Uh, He pulls the same stunt after decades that he pulled in Egypt, lying to a king named Abimelech about his wife, Sarah, and yet God graciously intervenes. Genesis 21, which we saw last week, now God comes along, and the promise that he has made, he fulfills. Abraham and Sarah have a son, they name him Isaac. And then God calls Abraham to do something that is unthinkable. He says, Ishmael, your son, you really love Ishmael. He needs to be sent away because in Isaac shall your seed be called. And Abraham in obedience and in faith passes a very, very difficult test. As the semester has gone along, Abraham's grades have improved. Abraham's faith has strengthened. His obedience in God has become more and more consistent. Where now we come to Genesis 22, it's been 25 years plus Okay, it was 25 years from the initial promise to the birth of Isaac. Isaac now is called a lad. He's a teenager. And God now calls Abraham to do the ultimately difficult thing, which is offer his son Isaac. Look with me in Genesis 22 after that lengthy runway. Let's get the plane off the ground. And it came to pass after these things. We're not told how long, but it'll be some time. Verse 34 of the previous chapter, that Abraham sojourned many days. So it's been a passage of time. That God did tempt Abraham. Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. After the decades of waiting, after the finally getting the thing promised, the son Isaac, after Isaac now has been weaned, Isaac is now grown, he is the treasure of Abraham's heart, he is the apple of his eye, God calls Abraham... To do something difficult. You see, as Isaac grew, so did a, a great danger. And the danger was this that Isaac would become the treasure of Abraham's heart rather than God, that the gift would be more important than the giver. And so God puts Abraham to the test to see Abraham, how strong is your faith? Will you obey me even when it costs you? So there, there's, there's three goals God has in this final exam, and let me just give you the overview. First goal God has is to prove Abraham's faith. Now, like a good teacher, God's not trying to get Abraham to fail the test, but to say, I want to show you and the world how far your faith has come by my grace. He's going to prove that test, that faith, by obedience. Secondly, God is going to, through this test, provide a substitute, which Preaches the gospel to us of a substitute that's placed in for Isaac at the last minute. And then finally, God is going to promise great and lasting blessing. So that's where we'll be going through this test. So let's look at the first goal God had. God is going to prove Abraham's faith. Now, verse 1 says that God did tempt Abraham. Normally we hear the word tempt. We're like, I was tempted to do evil. I don't know that that's the best translation of that word. Put the word test there in your mind. God is going to test Abraham. He's not trying to allure Abraham to do something which is evil, but rather he's going to test. He's going to prove the reality and the, uh, the integrity of Abraham's faith. This is not a test that God wishes Abraham to fail, but God foresees that Abraham will pass. Listen, God is omniscient and sovereign, so the outcome of this test was never in doubt. It's not like God's like, I really don't know what Abraham will do. Listen, we don't have a God who is uncertain about the future. The future for our God is as certain as the past because he is the God who has decreed all that comes to pass. Nonetheless, it's going to be worked out in time as God shows and proves what Abraham's faith is made of. God wants to know, does Abraham truly treasure God for God's sake, or does he merely trust God to give him what he always wanted? So here's the, the God says to him, Abraham, and Abraham says, behold, here am I. Notice Abraham's submission. He's going to say that phrase three different times in this chapter. One Hebrew word, Hineni. here I am, I'm at your disposal, whatever you want for me here I am. It says, now, take now thy son. Now, here's how this is worded in uh, the the order in the Hebrew. God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. That's that's the order. Now, we we, we have it changed a little bit here in um, in our translation. Take now your son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. Isaac is held to the very end. So it's like God is starting with the broadest, moving down to the most intimate of his heart. Take now your son. Your one and only son, Ishmael's out of the picture. This is all you got left, Abraham. Whom you love, your beloved son, the one who you treasure. And then, of course, in case God is wondering, Isaac. So God's saying, Abraham, I want you to take the one thing that you treasure most in this life. Okay, the first verb is take. And then verse verse 2 continues, and get into the land of Moriah. So take him, go, and then here's this next verb, which is absolutely shocking. Offer him there for a burnt offering. Now, a burnt offering is, is called the holah. It is the offering that was burned entirely. Burned to ashes. The way that a holah would be offered is you would slit the throat of the, the, the sacrificial victim. It would, the, the, the sacrifice would be dismembered and then burned to ash on the altar. Now, Abraham had done this before with lambs and with goats and with sheep. But God's calling him to do that with his beloved son. I mean, this is absolutely ghastly. This is morally repugnant, right? To be, slit the throat of your son, dismember him, burn him to ash on the altar. Now, there's a bit of a dilemma here, because we know what God says later on. You can read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where God explicitly forbids child sacrifice. And one of the sins of Israel that results in their judgment from God is their child sacrifice. What is God doing here? Remember, this is a revelation of Abraham's faith. This is not an expression of God's eternal moral will. God, We're told in verse 1 this is a test. This is not God actually being like, you're going to actually go do this. Now, Abraham does not know that. Abraham's not let in on the fact that this is a This is a test. But this is not an expression of God's moral will where God's like, yeah, this is actually a morally good thing. God is going to stop Abraham before the, the deed is carried all the way out. So God is not telling Abraham to do something that is sinful because God does not intend for this to go all the way through. Nonetheless, this is God saying, your son, the, God, the son that I myself promised and gave to you, you're going to go offer on an altar. This is incredible. If you read the rest of the narrative, you know what God's good purpose is. God has a very good purpose in this to show Abraham's faith, to confirm the reality of his obedience, to confirm the reality that Abraham treasures God, to provide an illustration of the gospel. God's got a a very, very good purpose in all of this. But even though Abraham did not know what we know, we're given that information at the beginning. God is testing Abraham. God doesn't tell him that. Abraham is simply given this command of God that he doesn't understand. It's kind of like the story of Job. We're told in Job 1 that Satan's got this thing going on, this sort of backroom thing going on with God in the courts of heaven. Job is never told about that. All that Job knows is, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job has to learn how to trust God, even when he does not understand. Realize God calls us to trust him, not necessarily to understand all the details of his secret will. There are plenty of things that God does in our lives and he does in history that he never comes along and offers an explanation for. We just want to know why, why, why. God does not always give us a why, but he does say, trust me, I always know what is best. It is better to know God than to know answers. It is better to know God than to understand circumstances. It is better to trust his providence than to understand all of his purposes. And Abraham is going to reveal that in his, in his obedience. Now, here's the thing I want to draw your attention to is God proves Abraham's faith as he puts it to the test and reveals what is really made of. Ultimately, what proves the reality of faith? It is obedience. Say, how do I know if my faith is real? How do I know that I'm a genuine Christian? Okay, my first question would be, Have you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? My second question is, how do you know your faith is real? How do we do that? Is examine your life, do you obey him? Hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments, 1 John 2 and verse 3. And Abraham is going to prove beyond any doubt that he has a real faith in God by his obedience. Let me draw your attention to some facets of his obedience. And I'm going to put these on the screen because this is our longest point that I want to draw your attention to. So don't be worried as you're like, oh no, we're going to be here until 1230. We'll get you out at least by noon. Um, Abraham's obedience, first off, is a complete obedience. So God's going to prove Abraham's faith. He's putting him to the test. The test is going to be expressed in obedience. Will he obey God? Now look at what he does in verse 3. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and cleaved the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon his upon Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And they went, both of them, together. This is complete, total obedience. When God speaks to Abraham, Abraham says, here am I, Hineni. I, I'm here at your disposal. When God gives him the staggering command, Abraham does not argue with God. He doesn't say, God... Could one of the servants do? Let's go find Lot. Maybe we can offer Lot. I mean, he's really not done a whole lot to be helpful. Maybe he could be the stand-in. But there is simply quiet acquiescence to the demands of God. Even verse 3, notice he gets up early in the morning. More than likely, God says this to him while he's sleeping. And I can't imagine what the rest of that night was like as Abraham agonized. Isaac, his son, who he loved. We're not told any of those details, but after what was undoubtedly a sleepless, agonizing night, he gets up early in the morning and he goes about. Now, notice the the verbs. He he saddles, he gets his servants, he cuts the wood, he goes. Now, the the order of the verbs is a little bit confused because you think cutting the wood would make sense before you saddle the donkey. I think it shows just sort of the emotional trauma that he's undergoing here. Just Things are confused, but he's obeying God as best he can. And he went off to the place, notice verse 3 says, the place of which God had told him. God has said, go to, go to the land of Moriah. Go to the land of Moriah. I'm going to reveal where you're going to go. So he's going to go at the right time, right away, immediate. The, the only kind of obedience that is right is immediate obedience. Not okay, I know, God, you told me to repent of my sin, but I'll do that later. No, obedience is, is, is immediate when God says. It's to the right place. There's specificity here. Abraham himself is engaged in obedience to God taking his, his teenage son, taking the lad, Isaac, where God told him to go. This is prompt obedience. There is no hesitation. He's not like a truculent three-year-old who is avoiding the peas on the plate that you're going to have a battle of the wills of. I remember trying that stunt as a kid. Mom and dad always won that one. He's not like that where he's like, I'm going to avoid this and I don't want to do it. But he steps to it right away as painful and difficult as this obedience would be. So verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, saw the place afar off. So this could be counted inclusively. So you say you leave Monday, you, you travel on Monday, Tuesday, and you're there sometime on Wednesday. Uh, probably counted inclusively. From Beersheba, where he is, um, verse 33 of chapter 11, uh, chapter 21 says he was there in Beersheba. To the land of Moriah is about 50 miles uh, that they're covering in three days. You say, where is... Moriah. According to 2 Chronicles 3 and verse 1, the only other place in the Bible that Moriah is mentioned, it is the place where Solomon builds his temple. Remember when there's a plague coming on Israel and uh, David is is pleading with the angel of the Lord and he buys the threshing floor and offers a sacrifice to stay the plague. That's the place where Solomon builds his temple, and it's called Moriah. So the location of this is modern-day Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, the, the dome of the rock. If you go to uh, go to Jerusalem today. There's a, there's a mosque on top of this location. It's where the temple would be built. It's where the rebuilt temple would be. Mount Moriah later on connected with the place of sacrifice. Now, it's interesting to me that it's the place where God told him, because if you read the rest of the Pentateuch, God says, go worship in the place where I will tell you that the, the place is important uh, for the worship of Israel later on, and here's where it is established. Now, during that three-day journey, I mean, man, that's got to be awkward, Here's Isaac. Abraham knows what he's going to have to do. There's no recorded conversation uh, between Abraham and Isaac. He doesn't explain what's going to happen. He can't bring himself to do that. Just simply, Abraham trudging along in silent submission to the drastic demands of God. Abraham willingly submitting, does not understand, but off he goes. Now verse 5. Verse 5 is an astounding verse. So they finally get there. They they lift up his eyes and saw the place afar off. By the way, that word saw in verse 4, circle that. Uh, that word saw is the key word in this chapter. You're like, it doesn't make any sense. This is the word later on when it, when it says, God will provide, God will see to it. It's the same Hebrew word. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, this is the same Hebrew word, changed forms a little bit, that word God will see to it. So Abraham sees here, later on God will see to it, and it, later on the place will be called God will see to it. In fact, even the name Moriah, you hear that, that R in there, very likely is built on this same verb. So everything here is about seeing. Abraham seeing the place, later on, God seeing the sacrifice and seeing to it, God seeing Abraham's faith. So God, uh, Abraham comes along, he sees the place, verse, four, verse 5. He says to the young men, these are his two servants, stay here, and I and the lad, hey, the, 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 that's the, the words referring to probably a teenage son, will go yonder and worship and come again to you. This is complete obedience. God had told him to go worship. But here is what is astounding. Isaac saying, okay, I'm going to go do what God told me to do, which is worship. But notice the end of the verse. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Now, here's the cool thing. With Hebrew, it'll tell you the number on the verb. Is it a first person singular? Abraham does not say, we will go and worship and I will come to you. But he says, we will worship and we will come again to you. So he's doing two things here. One of them is saying, I'm going to obey God completely. God told me to worship. I'm going to go do exactly what God told me to do. But there's also faith. We will both together come back to you. Even though I'm going to, I fully intend to obey God and offer my son, I will come back. We two together will come back to you. This is a staggering statement. Now, Hebrews 11. I want you to see this. We won't go to all over the Bible, everywhere this morning, but I do want you to go with me to Hebrews 11 because this is a crucial commentary on this text. Hebrews 11 gives us a divinely inspired commentary on what is going through Abraham's heart and mind as he says, we will go and worship and we will come back again. What's he doing? Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, so he follows through on what God told him to do. Of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting, this is, this, is, this is what I want you to see, verse 19, Hebrews 11, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. He's, what this verse is saying is Abraham went to that altar fully intending to offer Isaac and fully believing that since God had promised that Isaac would be the son of promise, that somehow God would raise him from the dead. We're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. There's resurrections in the Bible of Lazarus and Jesus, but none of that's happened. There has not been a syllable written anywhere in the Bible that would lead Abraham to believe that there would be a resurrection. He doesn't even have the Bible. He's never seen a resurrection. He doesn't have a word from God saying this is the kind of thing that God would do, but he has a deep, implicit faith in God that says, I believe God can raise my son from the ashes of the altar and fulfill his promise. That is serious faith, and that is the kind of faith that fuels this complete obedience. Say, so I can obey without believing God. No, you can't. Unless you really believe God, you cannot obey God. Real faith is, real obedience is rooted in faith, and real faith will be displayed in obedience. So I believe in God. I'm a Christian. Okay, where's the evidence in your life? Faith will be seen in works. This leads us into a, another aspect of his obedience. Obedience is not only complete obedience, but it is confident obedience. Back to Genesis 22. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon his son Isaac. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they both went, to them to, went together. So notice that phrase, they both went together. That'll come up again in verse 8. That's kind of the, the bookends of this little subunit. And Isaac said unto, his, uh, unto Abraham his father, He said, My father. And he said, Here am I. Hineni, there's that word again, my son. And he said, Behold, the, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. As Abraham obeys God, and we've already touched on this a little bit, but there is confidence in God that he will come through. So as Abraham and Isaac, just together, just the two of them, ascend Mount Moriah... Abraham takes the wood for the offering off the back of the donkey and lays it on his son Isaac. He puts it on Isaac's sturdy shoulders. Probably the way up is too rocky for a donkey to go. So we've got wood, we've got fire, and we've got this knife. By the way, this knife is a very deadly weapon. Don't think little pocket knife. This is a, the kind of a knife that's used elsewhere in Scripture for hacking up entire bodies. This is, this is something that's pretty drastic, uh, like a miniature sword even. So what we have going on in verse 6 is we have an innocent son bearing the means of his own death to the place of execution. You see that in verse 6. Isaac carrying the wood that will be the result of his own death up a hill to the place of his own execution. Long before Christianity came along, there was a Jewish interpretation of this called Genesis Rabbah. And it compared Isaac's actions here. This is pretty cool. This is what the Jews thought when they read this in their own culture. So what Isaac is doing here is like a condemned man bearing his own cross to the place of execution. I mean, isn't that amazing? Here is a picture built here into the very text of Scripture. Abraham doesn't know that he's, he's painting a picture of what would happen. But we know in, in, in John 19 and verse 17 that Jesus bore his own cross. Here it is to the place of Moriah. There it is to the place of the skull. Isaac here a picture of an obedient son bearing his own cross to the place of execution not because of any sin that he has done but to fulfill the will of his father just as Jesus Christ would do for you and me But notice Abraham's confidence Isaac asks the obvious question Okay we've prepared really thoroughly here we got a knife we got fire we got we got wood Got it Missing something really big here dad we don't have a lamb for the sacrifice Isaac had seen many sacrifices. I think Abraham was a guy who was a faithful worshiper. of Yahweh would worship regularly. Isaac knew that sacrifices involved a sacrifice. We We didn't bring a sheep. We didn't bring a ram. We didn't bring a goat. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? By the way, that is the first mention of the word lamb in the entire Bible. Obviously, there's sacrifices before that. But this mention of a lamb, this is sort of programmatic for what's going to happen later on in Scripture. Now here, the confidence of Abraham is he's not going there planning to get out of this. He's not going there being like, we've got a plan B and we're going to try to hoodwink God. He's going to the place of sacrifice, expecting to offer Isaac, expecting to come back again that God will either raise Isaac from the dead or provide a substitute. Verse 8, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. I would say Abraham's response is the high point of the book of Genesis. I would say this is even perhaps the high point of the entire Old Testament, because in these words, these six words in the Hebrew, he preaches the gospel. By the way, Isaac's question, six words in Hebrew, Abraham's answer, six words. Where's the lamb? God will provide the lamb. Now this is unusual, because normally the offerer provides the lamb, and God receives the sacrifice. But in this sacrifice that he envisions, God himself will be both the provider... And the one who is placated. He will be both the one who supplies the offering and the one who is satisfied by it. God will provide for himself a lamb. Now, I would love to say God will provide himself. He himself will be the lamb. Ah, oh, that'll preach. But that's not really what's going on. Yeah. Grammatically, God will provide for himself the lamb. Now, just to get a little technical here, normally what you have in Hebrew is you get a verb and then the subject. Provide God a lamb. But the order gets reversed here to say, no, God will be the one to provide the lamb. It's not going to be a human provision. It's not going to be a man made provision. It will be a God given provision of this lamb. The question, where is the lamb, rings out over the pages of Scripture. Sin requires sacrifice, sin requires death, sin requires atonement. And the question that's asked from generation to generation is, where's the lamb? Where is the sacrifice that can atone and take away sin? Yes, Israel would have a sacrificial system, but year after year after year, a lamb had to be offered on Yom Kippur. Day after day after day, a bird offering in the morning and in the evening could never take away sins finally. Where is the lamb? Every sacrifice that was offered in Israel's history was asking the question, where is the lamb? Where is the one who will take away sin? Where is the one who will satisfy a holy God? And Abraham's question I don't or answer I don't know that he was intending it with this full scope but we read the Bible from beginning to end and we realize it means a whole lot more than just immediate but something eternal God will provide himself a lamb. Now that word provide circle that word. That's the same word that is he saw the place. This is the same word. God will see to it himself. God will provide, God will see to the lamb himself. He'll make sure it happens himself. God will provide to and for himself this lamb to satisfy his requirements. We read along in Scripture, and we come along to John chapter 1, where John, I think, very self-consciously records an event. John the Baptist is baptizing along the Jordan River. And he sees Jesus coming, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Not just covers it, not just temporarily, but takes it away forever. Behold the Lamb, look to Him in faith, look to Him with love. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's two options for dealing with sin. God can either take away the sin or He can take away the sinner. And by sending Jesus, God says, here is the means by which sin can be taken away and sinners can be set free and forgiven. We trace this along further in Scripture and we get to the end of history. And the song is sung before the throne of God. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive riches and glory and honor. The Lamb who was slain for us, but who is living. The one who was wounded, but is now alive. The one who was dead and conquered death. For all eternity, we will be worshiping and celebrating the Lamb who conquers the dragon. The Lamb who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Lamb who wraps up all of human history, Jesus Christ. The only lamb that can take away sin is Jesus. And yet, there's probably someone who's sitting in this room today, you have been trying your whole life to deal with your own sin. You've tried to be moral, you've tried to be good, you've gone to church, you've been baptized, but there's still the stain of guilt in your soul. It's just not taken away. I'm not actually right with God. I just hope and wish, and maybe my good works will outweigh my bad works. Behold the lamb. He so I just can't be good enough, behold the Lamb. I can't deal with my sin myself, behold the Lamb. Or, I can deal with my sin, no, behold the Lamb. Look to Jesus and Him alone. Turn away from looking to self-effort. Turn away from looking to yourself and look to Christ to satisfy the wrath of a holy God against rebellious sinners. Another aspect of Abraham's obedience is a costly obedience. Verses 9 and 10, they came to the place which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay, literally to slaughter his own son. This is costly obedience. Now the narrative moves to kind of excruciating slow motion. We covered three days in just one sentence. Now we get... Mere seconds, this is excruciating, slow motion. Just forget a second that you 've read the story before and know how, know how it ends. Abraham is saying i 'm going to obey God even if it costs me the thing that matters most to me, my son. Each agonizing step has brought Abraham closer to this fateful moment, unless you think Abraham is just kind of lost it here and killing his own son and says he 's in the place which God told him of. He's, he's acting in complete consistency with the purposes and the commands of God. And Isaac, he's, you know, he's a teenager. He can overpower his 100-year-old dad if he wants to, right? He's willingly obeying his father. Isaac trusts Abraham just as Abraham trusts Yahweh. It's an amazing chain of obedience and trust. He makes no protest. He opens not his mouth, just as Christ did as he went to the cross. Isaac is now bound. Now, why, why bind him? Uh, the last thing you want is the sacrificial victim running away as he is offered on the altar. By the way, that word bound, this is the only place in the entire Old Testament where that Hebrew word adekah is found. That's the Hebrews call this the adekah because this word is found only here. It is a unique word. He's bound on the altar. He's placed on the altar. You don't have any record here of, of Abraham having to, to, you know, to, to wrestle Isaac and get the... You know, Isaac is submitting to this... And Isaac's now bound in place as Abraham sent forth his hand. That's the the picture. He's sending forth his hand. It's like a deliberate action of the will. I'm going to send forth my hand with this large knife clasped in his fingers. The knife is precariously held over his son's throat. He's ready to slice his son's throat and slaughter him on the altar. I want you to get a sense of how just appalling and galling this scene is. It's like, oh, this is the Sunday school. Here's Abraham on the flannel graph. This is, this is horrendous. This is costly obedience. Why does, God, why does God take Abraham through this? Why does God take you and me through suffering? Because I'd be lying to you this morning. you say, God has a wonderful plan for your life, just sunshine and happiness. No, God takes his people through suffering. He takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. He takes us through the fire. Why does he do that? Why does he take us through sickness? Why does he take us through loss? Why does he take us through grief? Why do we deal with the death of loved ones? Why do we deal with broken relationships and things that tear at our very heart? Because God loves us too much to let us settle for anything other than him. He's the ultimate good in the universe, and it's not just sort of God is selfish. No, the best thing for you and me is that we treasure and love God, that we have him as our inheritance who will never be taken away You see, faith is more than just simply taking God at his word. Yeah, yeah, I believe God. Faith is taking God at his word and embracing God for all that he is for us in Christ. Faith not only trusts, but it also treasures. Faith sees God as so infinitely valuable that it relinquishes everything to him. Faith says, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. That is... Is faith. Abraham's at this point now passed the test, which brings us to God's second goal. The second and third one really come very closely together. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, Here am I. He named me. As Abraham's got his outstretched arm clutching the deadly knife, God speaks. Now he doesn't say Abraham, but he says it twice because he is getting Abraham's attention. This is urgent. Abraham has come to the very brink of slaughtering his own son, and now God stops it. He hits pause to the proceedings. Do not lay your hand on him. Look at verse 12. Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything against him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. God God says, Abraham, I know that you really revere me. You really fear me. I've experienced that. Now God knew that before he was omniscient. It's not that God learned something he didn't know before, but the idea of knowing is experiencing. He is firsthand experienced as time has unfolded, the love and the devotion of Abraham towards him. In this scene here, we see God providing a substitute. It begins with intervention. The test is now over. God says, Abraham, you have done what I called you to do. You have not withheld your only son from me. Now, this verse is alluded to in the New Testament in Romans Eight thirty-two says, "And God spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. If He does that, how shall He not also freely give Him with him, give us freely all things? Whereas God stops Abraham from plunging the knife into His Son at the cross, the Father did not withhold, but slaughtered His own Son. He did not withhold His own Son from us, but delivered Him up freely for us all—a lavish sacrifice." you look at the cross, we do not simply see Jesus as a martyr. We see Jesus as a sacrifice. Sacrifice to placate and satisfy the wrath of God against your sin and my sin. And just as Abraham's willingness to hand over his son showed his love for God, so God's willingness to hand over his son shows his love for us. I don't really think God can love me. How can a good God allow suffering in this world? How can a good God allow me to get this sickness? How can a good God allow a pandemic? How can a good God... God proves his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. The cross is the supreme demonstration of the love and the generosity of God, a God who did not hold the dagger back but slaughtered his son Jesus for us. By the way, if you want to know how much God hates sin, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Verse 12 says that God says I now know that thou fearest God. God says, I, "Abraham, you are justified" According to James chapter two, this is Abraham's justification by works. Back in Genesis 15, God saw his faith. Abraham believed God, it was counted him for righteousness. Here we now see His faith brought to fruition. His faith has been proven by His works, and God looks at that and say, "Yes, there's the proof positive that your faith is real and your faith is genuine. You can read James 2:21 to 34. God declares that this obedience is proof positive of his complete devotion. To Yahweh. But verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Okay, there's that word again. You can circle that. Behold, behind him a ram was caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering, and then notice this: in the stead of his son. This is a picture of substitution. Here's Isaac on the altar, slated to die, and God brings along a substitute to take the place of Isaac. Abraham sees this sacrifice and it replaces Isaac. This is an illustration of what we later find in Scripture, substitutionary atonement. The entire Levitical sacrificial system is, hey, the sinner should die, but instead of the sinner, the sacrifice will die. Taking us to the cross, instead of the sinner facing the wrath of God, God the Son faces the wrath of God. You can imagine Abraham with trembling fingers and a pounding heart, unties the knots that restrained his son Isaac. Isaac leaping off the altar into the arms of his father. I think this was a very touching, emotional scene as father and son are reunited from the brink of death. And at the very instant, God provides this ram. Now, notice what Abraham does in verse 14. Abraham called the place, the name of that place, Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. There's that word, uh, provide-Jireh. Is that word seen. You can circle that in the end of verse 14, that word seen. There it is again. God provides this substitute. What Jesus does for us who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus who dies for us. Jesus who's freely offered up for us. That's what this is picturing. The price of our sin. And Abraham commemorates this by renaming the place. There's commemoration here. Moriah becomes now Yahweh Yireh is how that would be said. God will provide is what Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, provides The Lord sees to it himself. And yes, God fulfilled that promise for Abraham that day with a ram caught in the thicket, but he provides and fulfills that promise in the death of his son, not only for Abraham, but for all who would repent and believe in Jesus. Now, do you notice Abraham does not call the place Abraham obeyed? Abraham Shema. He does not say, this is going to be Abraham obeyed. This is the place that we will commemorate the great obedience of Abraham. No, this is a place that commemorates the great provision of Yahweh. My original outline had Abraham as the subject. Abraham's obedience, point number one. And Abraham's sacrifice or something like that, point number two. But as I've studied this, I'm like, this is not about Abraham. This is about God. God lovingly proves Abraham's faith, tests Abraham's faith, for Abraham's own good and God's own glory. God provides this this substitute, not only for Isaac, but for God's own glory to proclaim the gospel. This is about what God does. And Abraham is declaring something that is true about God. Back in Genesis 21, verse 33 he called on the name of the Lord and the, the everlasting God, Elohim Olam, the God who is eternal. Now he calls him God who provides. This is something that is true about God. This is not just something God did. This is something that God is. He is a providing God. And I can get up here and say, well, God provides our, our physical needs, but you know, we know that's not always true. There are people this morning who call the name of Jesus who will die of starvation More than anything, what God provides is not so much for our physical needs as for the greatest spiritual need we could ever have, which is for the atonement of sin and reconciliation with him through Jesus. And God provides all that we need. Ironically, the times where we think, well, God didn't provide what I wanted, he is providing what we actually need. Well, God, I provide healing, and God says, no, I have something better, which is to part and to be with Christ. God, provide for my physical needs, and God says, I'm going to provide something for you to contentment Through adversity, so you're facing financial difficulty. You're facing health difficulty. You're facing just emotional depression. God will see to it. God will provide. And the provision is Jesus. God does not give us something less than Jesus. He gives us Jesus himself. Just as Abraham did not spare his own son out of love for God, remember, God did not spare his own son out of love for us. God provides a substitute. This is the gospel. But finally, what has God accomplished in this final exam? He proves Abraham's faith and Abraham's obedience through costly, through complete, through confident obedience. God provides a substitute declaring to us the gospel. But finally, God promises lasting blessing. So you notice how this is put together. Verse, verse 1, God speaks for the first time, and that takes us all the way sort of through verse 10. Verse 11, God speaks a second time stopping the sacrifice and providing a substitute. And God speaks a third time in verse number 15. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, by myself have I sworn. By the way, you're like, is the angel of the Lord the same as the Lord because it seems as if God is speaking? It's because the angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity. He is God and he speaks for God. He is God, but he is different from the person of God the Father. We see just a little glimpse into the workings of the Trinity. The angel of Yahweh, not just any old angel, but the second person of the Trinity, by myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice." God makes these incredible promises. Now, as you read those promises, they should sound really familiar, because they are. Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees and says, I'm going to multiply your seed. You're going to have a land, a seed, and a blessing. And here God comes along and says, you're going to have a land, a seed, and a blessing. He reiterates what he had said all along. This is the very last time that we have a recorded word from God to Abraham. The first word's in Genesis 12, the last word is in Genesis 22. These are the bookends of Abraham's life. And his life begins in Genesis 12 and ends in Genesis 22 with divine promise. The same promise as God has proven to him over and over again. Now here's the thing that's different. Notice the language, and I really like how the King James renders this. That in blessing, I will bless thee. That is the Hebrew way of saying, Abraham, I'm not just going to bless you, but I'm going to bless bless you. I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest imaginations. This blessing will be expansive and lasting. I'm not just going to multiply thy seed, but I'm going to multiply, multiply thy seed. There's going to be exponential uh, multiplication of offspring. Two metaphors he'd given earlier, as the stars of heaven, Genesis 15, as the sand of the sea, Genesis 17. And they'll possess the gates of their enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Verse 18 is ambiguous. Seed could be collective and it could be singular. According to Galatians, what did God mean, in thy seed? He didn't mean all of his offspring, but he meant his offspring par excellence. The ultimate son of Abraham, the ultimate son of David, the ultimate one who is the anointed, expected one, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, all of these pr- promises find their us find their, their end and their aim in Jesus It's in Jesus that all believers become sons of Abraham. Billions of people worldwide over history who've been believers in Jesus Christ, far more than just the physical offspring of Abraham. This blessing that reaches the nations indeed has reached the nations in Jesus. But I want to draw your attention to two things that are unusual about this promise. First is in verse 16 By myself have I sworn. This is the first time when God makes promises to Abraham that he reiterates over and over again that God says, I'm obligating myself, I am swearing myself by myself to you, Abraham. Why does God do that? According to Hebrews chapter 6, it's because God could swear by no greater. He swore by himself. This is a personal guarantee, as if God's word is not enough. But God is saying, Abraham, I want you to know the absolute surety. These promises are bound up in my essence and my existence. God is saying this, that if these promises do not be carried out, I am no longer God and I die Listen, can God, can, can, can God die? The answer is no. Can these promises fail? The answer is no. Absolutely guaranteed. When we swear an oath, you know, you raise your right hand to swear the truth based on the Bible because we want to swear by something greater than ourselves. When God swears, he says, I'm going to swear by my very own existence that these promises will be filled. I am obligating myself unilaterally to fulfill them. I am I'm obligating myself personally to fulfill them. We can rest in God's promises. But there's something else that's unusual that doesn't seem to fit. Verse 16 says, for because you have done this thing. Do you see that in verse 16? God's saying, I'm promising these things because you have obeyed me. Verse 18 ends with these words, because you have obeyed my voice. And you're like, hang on a second. I thought this was based on God's promise. And now we're finding out that this is because of Abraham's obedience. That's unusual. This is new. This is surprising. Yet here's God on the other end of Abraham's life saying, I'm going to fulfill these promises because you were obedient. Like, oh, maybe it's faith and works. Maybe it's obedience and promise. Remember, the promise came first. The promise was antecedent to, the promise was the cause of the obedience. Don't forget this. This is not just promise or reward, gift or wage, sovereign grace or human response. Rather, it is God's promises and God's uh, goodness that produces obedience. It is faith that results in works. It is grace that leads to deeds. So because of God's promises, Abraham obeyed. And God says, your your obedience is an essential expression of your faith. So we're saved by God's promises. We're saved by God's grace. But that grace that saves is a grace that will also transform. That faith that justifies will also sanctify. So my question to you, has your life been fundamentally altered by the promises of God? Has your life been fundamentally altered by reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Has your life been fundamentally altered by an encounter with the living God? Listen, you have an encounter with the living God. Your life will be different. Your affections will be different. The things you love will be different. Your direction will be different. You'll move towards holiness. Your destiny will be different. Your hope will be in heaven, not on things of this earth. So some questions for you as we we land the plane, as we conclude our study of Abraham's life. Question number one, do you truly treasure God? Do you treasure God above everything else? Do you treasure God more than your possessions? Do you treasure God more than your vocation, your job? Do you treasure God more than your relationships, more than your kids, more than your spouse? Do you treasure God above everything? Is he utmost in your affections? Maybe today there's something you need to hand over to God say, God, any, it's yours. Here am I. Second question, not only do you trust God, but do you trust God? Do you treasure God? Do you trust God? Do you really trust him deep down in this kind of way that, God, if you want me to give this up, I, I know that what you have for me is something that is better, like Abraham did. Do you really trust him deep down when the going gets tough, when the lights go out, when the valley of the shadow of death looms? Do you trust him for your eternity? Or is there a little bit of, well, to hedge my bets, I'm also going to rely on my goodness? Do you trust God for your family, for your kids as they go out? Or is there this this, this clinging, and I'm going to hold, and I'm uh, going to helicopter parent, or will I trust God? Do you trust God for your finances, or is your, your financial life just marked by worry and fretting and constant staring at the numbers on the bank account? Do you trust God for your health? that no matter what he chooses to do with your health, you will say that is good and that is best and that is right, even if it's not what I thought he should do. God's promises are the bookend of this, li- of this amazing life. God's sovereign grace called Abraham out of, out of her. God's sovereign grace carried him through many dangers, toils, and snares. God's grace grew Abraham's fledgling faith. He lifted him up when he stumbled. And ultimately, through, by grace through faith, Abraham triumphed over this final exam. Abraham, by God's grace and grace alone, aced the final exam. I don't know when your final exam will come, and maybe it comes multiple times. But may we trust and treasure God, come what may. Father, thank you for this incredible example. May we sing with all of our hearts.